This is episode 133 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Regenerative and Malignant Stem Cells in the Lung, featuring Dr. Carla Kim. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Dalon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today we have Dr. Carla Kim from Boston Children's Hospital here to talk about her research on stem cell biology in normal lung and in lung cancer. Famously, Dr. Kim, working in Tyler Jack's lab, developed a method to isolate the first stem cell population from the adult murine lung, termed bronchioalveolar stem cells, or BASCs. And if you want to stay even more up to date with the latest stem cell podcast news, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at at stem cell podcast. This will allow you to be the first to know about all our upcoming guests, as well as cool new research in the stem cell field. All right, we got all that to get to. A nice talk with Dr. Kim about Basques and lung cancer. And a roundup, of course, coming right up. But first, this week, fitting nicely with our guests, we would like to introduce Pulmonary Cell News, covering everything lung, from COPD to cystic fibrosis to cancer, Pulmonary Cell News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the lung research community. Check out Pulmonary Cell News and the rest of Stem Cell Scientific Newsletters at www.pulmonarycellnews.com. It's like a breath of fresh air. Get out there, get a look at that. All right, now on to the roundup. First, we're starting with a neural story. You know, we start at the top. Uh, This is a story out of Cell Stem Cell from Andreas Trump's group at High Stem in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, It's a direct differentiation approach, but it has a twist here. Okay, so a little background. You can get various types of neural stem and progenitor cells uh, from directed differentiation. However, the generation of these direct differentiated neural cells from like induced pluripotent stem cells, for example, suffers from A, the lengthy reprogramming protocol of the, you know, making the IPS cells, and then you got to validate those cells, and then you got to validate the individual neural stem progenitor cell lines that you generate there and then you got to worry about the risk of maybe propagating some of these tumor prone pluripotent remnants you know the teratoma makers that everyone's so worried about so it would be nice if you could do direct conversion right and they've done it direct conversion of somatic cells into specific neural cells but especially mature neurons it's become feasible and relatively commonplace in recent years, but direct reprogramming into expandable neural progenitors remains a major challenge. Major. So that's what Trump's group was looking at there. And what they've done here, it's pretty straightforward, but I don't want to minimize it. They report this direct reprogramming approach, direct reprogramming of both adult human fibroblasts as well as blood cells into induced neural plate border stem cells by overexpression of four neural transcription factors. Uh, They also show they engrafted in vivo and function in the not-skid mice, NSG mice, and showed by single-cell RNA sequencing uh, 
that these cells most likely are seem to because they correlate it to actual mouse legit mouse tissue in the brain from embryonic day 8.5 they showed that they were they came from anterior hind brain so you know pretty cool this is a a kind of nice recipe and a proof of principle for this direct reprogramming to proliferative progenitors may facilitate insights into neural development because you know the uh, anterior hindbrain there's some kind of developmental ramifications there uh, in terms of our smarts and uh, also of course you provide a readily available neural stem cell source for applications in regenerative medicine so great job coming out of high stem in germany good way to set off the roundup next another neural story never enough neural on this show this one is about uh, epilepsy okay uh, so injury from an epileptic fit you have like a sustained epileptic seizure called status alepticus you can cause hippocampal injury that then in turn leads to a state of chronic epilepsy um, and while you can treat this with these anti-epileptic drugs, um, that doesn't really, that doesn't really terminate the origins of the epileptic. It just masks it, you know. Uh, and also, long-term intake of these drugs is, has side effects, so you don't want to do it. There's an alternative approach, of course, cell therapy, that people get excited about, <clears throat> not for no reason either. You can graft these medial ganglionic eminence-derived GABAergic progenitor cells. That's the idea that's received a lot of vis uh, visibility um, because, first of all, the loss of these GABAergic interneurons is a major, major pathological hallmark in um, temporal lobe epilepsy. So you can imagine that grafting back some of those cells That'd be the move there, and it's shown efficacy in decreasing uh, seizures in the chronic phase, and, and particularly using these fetal uh, medial ganglionic eminence. Let's call them MGE, so that I don't make any mistakes. So fetal MGE cells, they show, they do a good job. Um, and also, if you get these MGE-like GABAergic progenitors from ES cells, human ESLs, you can graft them in a mouse model, temporal lobe epilepsy leads to a good effect. But no one's shown that this will work in a, in a long-term capacity. So that's what Ashok Shetty's group at Texas A&M wanted to do there. And what they did is through this comprehensive, they did this video electroencephalographic recording and all these behavioral tests in rats. And they demonstrated that if you graft the iPS cell-derived MGE-like interneuron precursors into the hippocampus after this long seizure, you greatly reduce the kind of sustained recurrent seizure. And you also alleviate the cognitive memory and mood dysfunction to boot. So a little bonus there in the chronic phase. And so that's long-term. And I, remarkably... As a little extra proof here, they showed they use these kind of these um, designer drug receptors that they engineered onto the cells and showed that if they add the designer drug, they could suppress 
the seizure, the seizure suppressing effect, they could essentially eliminate it when they added the drug. They could turn it on and off by turning off the, the grafted cells, and that's implying that there's like a direct involvement with the interneurons and seizure control, and likely through the enhanced ac activity of these interneurons. So, hey, we're thinking, well, they're thinking, this supports a study. Let's do it. Phase one, patient-specific MGE cell grafting in humans for treating temporal lobe epilepsy. I mean, they're not saying let's do it, but that supports, it's a good rationale. Maybe in China. Maybe they're already doing it in China. <clears throat> doing crazy stuff over there. All right, let's go on to something. We just talked about this uh, with Sandra Rome a couple shows ago. The sperm niche. Well, we're talking about it again. This is a story out of Shoshi Yoshida's group, okay? That's at the National Institute for Basic Biology in Japan. And what they were looking at is a spermatogenic stem cell niche. This is kind of similar to what Ryom was doing, kind of figuring out what the recipe is to self-renew the SSCs in human. But here, they were more kind of formulating like a hypothetical framework, okay, which is, which is aggressive and impressive at the same time. I love it. So just to set the stage here, you know, spermatogonial stem cell niche, any cycling adult tissue, you need a balance, self-renewal with differentiation, okay? And the asymmetry there, the kind of asymmetric cell differentiation, one self-renews, one differentiates, it can be enforced at like a cell level, the cell is making that choice, or it can be just random with the balance only achieved like at the population level. It's kind of stochastic uh, population asymmetry, as it's been called. So traditionally, a lot of like conceptually, I guess, the major hypothesis has been to emphasize the, the control of this fate asymmetry by means of short-range either growth, like mitogenic or self-renewal, anti-differentiation signals from a definitive niche, you know, a definitive anatomical niche, which comprises like a microenvironment where the stem cells are physically anchored and separated from the dif differentiated progeny. However, there's some tissues where there's not this like very strictly enforced anatomically, physically define niche, there's this a more open niche where the stem cells are distributed among their differentiated progeny. A good example of this is like the blood. And also, of course, spermatogenesis, the stem cells are kind of in it. They're right in the mix there with the uh, differentiated progeny. So in order to kind of, I guess, color in this hypothetical framework of an open niche and what governs it, um, Shoshe Yoshida's group, they used uh, murine spermatogenesis and, and found that pretty straightforward. They found that the spermatogenic stem cell density is tightly regulated, basically, but just by supply of fibroblast, fibrobla fibroblast growth factors, FGFs specifically from lymphatic endothelial cells. So this kind of gives the spatial coordinate there 
and they propose that the homeostasis in the niche net is achieved through competition through a lim- for a limited supply of FGFs and that quantitatively the dependence of stem cell density uh, on FGF dosage is clear as well as the biased localization. It's right at the source. You see FGF source, you see that's where the stem cells are. And also the dynamics of regeneration after you injure. It's all predicted and explained within the framework of this mitogen competition hypothesis. All right, and then they go on. And this is why I said it was kind of aggressive. They were like, all right. We say that all open niches probably are governed by this same mechanism. All right, well, we'll see. Let's go to the open niches and take a survey. I think some of them probably will be governed by this simple concept, you know, the source and the sink. I would like to be close to the source if I was a stem cell. But you never know. Biology has a way of surprising you. So moving on to a couple of nature stories we have. I thought they were relevant today because, you know, it's about cancer. Our guest is interested in cancer. There's an airway story. So let's start with the uh, immune story. We'll do the airway and seamlessly transit into Dr. Kim. So this is a nature story from three senior authors, Laura McKay, Jason Waitham, and Thomas Gebhardt. They're from University of Melbourne, as well as the University of Western Australia in Perth. So it's about memory T cells, okay, but specifically these tissue resident memory T cells, okay, so taking a step back, the immune system, right? We know, we talk about it almost every episode a little bit about this, the idea of this immune surveillance assay or immunotherapy. Turns out the immune system does a pretty good job of knocking out cancer and it can suppress tumor development both by eliminating malignant cells or by, and or by preventing outgrowth and spread of cancer cells that like resist eradication. So they can stay where they are, but as soon as they have the nerve to try and metastasize, they get blown up. And there's clinical and experimental data that suggests that the latter mode of control called this cancer immune equilibrium, where it's just suppressed from metastasis, can be maintained for a long while, almost decades in some cases, several decades. All right? So if we have this immune surveillance, how do we do it? How does it work? Well, it turns out most cancers arise within epithelial cell layers and that means that the immune cell access to these tissue compartments, including the skin, which is the focus of this study, the epidermal cell layer, it's critical. If you want to get some kind of anti-cancer immunity, immune access, you need it, right? And in, in the epidermal layers, epithelial cell layers, uh, you know, we don't know what the degree of access is. Specifically, you know, we do know kind of that recirculating T-cells, the ones that are going in the blood, they're largely excluded from the skin um, unless there's some inflammatory inflammation like infiltration. But there is a population of these tissue-resident memory, so let's call them TRM cells, 
that they populate the skin following infection or inflammation. All right. So cue the approach here. They're just trying to figure out, are these like the mediators of this tumor surveillance and, and, and immune equilibrium? They use a, a model of transplantable cutaneous melanoma to investigate the cells and their anti-cancer potential. Uh, and what they show essentially is that in, in, in mice that are inoculated with this melanoma, there's a proportion, 40% roughly, where the melanoma cells remain free of macroscopic lesions um, after the epicutaneous inoculation. So they inject it in the site, but they don't get the macro lesions. And it so happens that this, these roughly 40% are also the ones that have a nice development of these tumor-specific TRM cells. All right, and then they go on to show that e even more impressive that if you preload with these TRM cells and then inoculate with the me melanoma, you get profound protection from tumor development, um, regardless of what the, the circulating bloodborne T cells look like. And on the other side, if you deplete these T regulatory, regulatory cells after they're surveilling things, you get tumor outgrowth in a significant proportion. So it looks like these might be kind of like, you know, s surveilling the system, suppressing the metastasis. And when you get rid of them, tumor goes crazy. So it has major implications. We can look into these uh, cells. It's a, it's a, I guess it's a good, good rationale for looking at TRM, these tissue-resident memory T cells. as another arrow in the quiver, so to speak, of our immunotherapy quiver. So, last story, sliding into the interview. This is a story about es esophageal airway. All right, and I like this story because it's, I think there's a rising tide, everyone talking about this cumulative mutations, you know, with age, or just even in normal, seemingly normal cells, they're all bugged out which I think is really important to consider in the IPS field. Because, you know, we've talked to guests that say skin probably not the best source. Cord blood, people. Another reason to save your cord blood. Your kid's cord blood. Too late for you. You're hosed. Uh, all right, so the, the thing here is we're going right to the, to the meat of it. Esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, all right, represents the most common esophageal cancer among Asian populations. Maybe no coincidence, this lead author is Seishiga Ogawa, coming out of Kyoto in Japan. Anyway, it's a, the second, you know, most leading esophageal cancer, and in the, in the role of heavy alcohol drinking and smoking have long been demonstrated to be linked to this. So, uh, you know, it's a big deal, big target population. And, and what's, I think, more important here, relevant to this story, is that in, in high-risk individuals, heavy drinkers and smokers, the, the TP53 mutated cells uh, that are kind of indicative of this cancer have been documented in normal esophageal epithelia, physiologically normal at least, seemingly normal, which suggests that there's a ton of precancerous foci before and leading up to the onset of cancer. So what um, 
Ogawa's group here did in an act of self-preservation, perhaps, is investigated early clonal events in the esophagus using multiple collections of micro-scale, physiologically normal esophageal epithelium samples. So tiny little, almost like as low as like a 0.2 millimeter in size. They took it from individuals of all ages and all lifestyles along the risk spectrum with, you know, smoking, drinking. And uh, then they followed that with uh, unbiased detection of somatic mutations and copy number abnormalities using whole exome sequencing, all right? And this was, I mean, it's so amazingly impressive, the scale and the scope of these precancerous foci. Okay, so get this. Of course, there's a progressive age-related expansion of clones that carry mutations in driver genes. Mostly it was notch one. So the precancerous kind of nodes there, notch one seems to be a real driver. Uh, and no coincidence, it's substantially accelerated. These driver genes emerging substantially accelerated by alcohol consumption and smoking. All right, it's a new year, guys. Get your resolutions in there if you're smokers and drinkers. Let's, let's you know, bring it back a bit. Um, and the, the, this is sick. Driver, the clones emerge multifocally from early childhood, increase their number and size with aging, all right, and ultimately replace almost the entire esophageal epithelium by the time you're extremely elderly. So your whole airway. Isn't that crazy? These mutations can be acquired before late ad- adolescence as early as infancy, all right, and... So, I mean, bottom line, the remodeling of the esophageal epithelium by driver-mutated clones, it's an inevitable consequence of normal aging, which, depending on lifestyle risk, may affect cancer development. I think this is nuts. What it, te- what it tells you is that the wheels start coming off as soon as you get out of the womb, probably before. So you got to get your resolutions in, people. It's a new year. All right, that's it for the roundup. Moving to the interview. But first, are you modeling the human airway in vitro? I mean, you need to think about it with what I just told you about your esophagus. It's bugging out. So maybe you want to you wanna think about it. But if you're modeling a human airway in vitro, you got to think, are your cultures physiologically relevant? Can you generate these cultures consistently? Learn more about Pneumocult. All right, that's offered by Stem Cell Technologies. It's a serum and bovine pituitary extract-free cell culture media for human airway epithelial cells. You can expand these cells for extended passages while maintaining air-liquid interface differentiation potential to study respiratory biology, infections, and drug responses. Explore more at www.stemcell.com slash pneumocult. That's P-N-E-U-M-A-C-U-L-T. All you lung people already knew that that pneuma was a PN. But if you didn't know, www.stemcell.com slash P-N-E-U-M-A-C-U-L-T. All right, on to the interview. Coming right up. All right, episode 133, we got Carla Kim. She's professor in the Division of Hemonc and Pulmonary Respiratory Diseases at Children's Hospital Boston. 
as well as in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School and in the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. The Kim Lab has pioneered the use of stem cell biology approaches for the study of adult lung progenitor cells and lung cancer through a combination of mouse genetics and cell biology. And they've used uh, and developed tools to identify and characterize cells with progenitor cell activity in the adult lung tissue, specifically these bronchioalveolar stem cells that uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, her lab has also developed 3D lung organoid systems that make it possible to derive specialized lung cells from lung stem cells and interrogate the crosstalk between specialized cell types in both the healthy and diseased lung. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk. Yeah, well, it's uh, lovely, to, lovely to have you. Why don't you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about the focus and interest in your lab? Well, I like to think of my lab's focus as being using stem cell techniques to better understand lung biology. And what we really are interested in uncovering are the molecules that control how a lung progenitor cell decides how to differentiate and how that process might be altered in lung diseases, including lung cancer. All right. So, you know, you're famous for these BASCs. And you know, I kind of came up at the beginning of the stem cell journey uh, when they were early derived. And I remember the time, you know, I was on this paper with uh, Shaheen Rafi where it was about these masks. You know, everything is SC at the end because they're all stem cells. And I remember there was this whole, they were crucifying us and being very, very specific at this point. There are so many of these stem cell subtypes, um, and it's important to distinguish their origins and their potential, etc. Um, so, yes, I don't know. Have there been other bronchia or, or airway stem cells? Can you give us a kind of status report? Where are we with the lung and airway stem cells that are out there and have been denoted to date? Absolutely. So... As a bit of history, when I started my lab, you would often hear the quote when you go to lung meetings that there are, there are 40 cell types in the lung. And I would say that today, there's probably at least 20 different kinds of lung stem cells that have been published. And so there are a large number of different cells that people from many different labs have identified to have stem cell activity within the adult lung. And when I first uh, named these cells BASCs, uh, at that time we were very excited because we had cultured these cells and shown that they could self-renew in culture and that we thought they were differentiating and therefore decided to call them stem cells. But to be honest, uh, I've thought many times since then about changing the names of these cells. Because as you said, I've heard many times that we still can't call them a stem cell. There's a lot of, let's say, controversy about whether we've completely proven that these cells are a stem cell, because we still don't know how to exactly identify these cells in vivo with a lineage tracing approach and show that they can produce all of the cell types that we can see in culture. Uh, and even today, we're learning more about this population of cells by doing experiments like single-cell RNA-seq. So that's just for my piece. And I like to actually refer to these cells differently now. 
uh, in my own lab, I'm encouraging everyone to call these cells by how we actually are isolating them. They are SCA1 positive epithelial progenitor cells. We have certain assays that we can use to show their properties. And one of the things that I think is a great strength for the whole lung field are the different methods of co-culturing uh, organoid cultures that many others in the lung field developed and made possible and then we, uh, we made our own refinements on how to do that to show the properties of these lung stem cells. But currently, to give you a perspective on the whole field, the general consensus right now and what the data support is that within the adult mouse lung, there are uh, several different populations of cells uh, going from the trachea down to the distal lung of cells that have stem cell activity. And that includes basal cells, which are probably the most widely accepted type of stem cell in the lung. And they can give rise to airway cell types. And it isn't clear yet whether they can give rise to an alveolar cell. Uh, then as you proceed down the airways, there are other cell types that can be stimulated to proliferate after injury. And the methods that people use to identify these various cells ranges from cell surface markers to lineage tracing approaches. So in general, it can seem very complicated to someone outside the field. Even people working in stem cells and other tissues often ask me the same question. What's going on with all these lung stem cells? But I think, as you can appreciate from your previous work, almost every epithelial tissue has this uh, question still. And there's a wide variety of cell types, probably in every one of these epithelial cells that have the ability, uh, epithelial tissues, I should say, that have the ability to turn over at some point and there's a lot more plasticity than we ever appreciated in adult tissues as well. Right. And I think, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the interest is in therapeutic applications. I mean, one major interest is a therapeutic application of these cells, which I guess is why everyone's trying to reduce it down to one single master cell. Is it, you think, ultimately going to be a matter of, in terms of cellular therapy, is it going to be a matter of having a master cell or do we just need to get the collection of the constituent parts? Will that function as well in a regenerative application? Right. So I'm assuming that you're thinking of building towards the future of a cell-based type of therapy for lung disease, let's say. Right. Well, let's start first. Take a step back. Is there lung, whole lung transplant for those of us who aren't really familiar with the state of kind of transplantation medicine in the lung? Oh, sure. And I should say, uh, I'm not a clinician. So, you know, there are many aspects of this that I wouldn't have the expertise to answer. But of course, people do get lung transplants. For some lung diseases that can be successful. Uh, it's extremely difficult type of surgery to, uh, to overcome and has its many complications. Uh, there are people who are developing uh, methods where they hope to be able to create, if you will, an uh, artificial lung at some point. There are people who are working on taking lungs from cadavers, or of course for now from mice and rats, and they're able to maintain them 
uh, inflating them in and out in, in a lab dish in some way. Uh, people that are working on decellularization techniques with their hope is to eventually be able to put cells back into those decell lung structures and then it's someday in the future transplant a whole lung. Uh, others are more of the mindset that we may actually be able to deliver cells to a damaged lung. But many questions remain. Uh, if we think about treating someone with lung disease, depending of course on which disease that is, even if we deliver a healthy lung stem cell, will that damaged environment actually be able to support those healthy cells? That Those are very open questions at this point. Uh, so if, if we go from the starting point of what we've done in the lab and work that we haven't published, uh, we're working hard to try to understand how can we deliver cells into the lungs of a mouse that's undergone injury. And can that be something that we can develop for the future? So I think it's it's becoming closer to reality that this could be possible in some way in the future. Uh, now, your original question was, is there, could there possibly be a certain cell population that would be amenable to that? And with the wide variety of different lung stem cells we talked about that are known, it's unclear at this point which ones would be the best use. There's also, of course, <clears throat> the possibility of using IPS-derived cells. And many other labs have uh, had great success in refining the techniques to take an IPS cell and uh, differentiate those to a defined lung epithelial cell type. So that might be, you know, even more likely to be a possible therapeutic someday. Um, that might be the easiest step. It's still hard to do these experiments. Yeah, well, you mentioned, I think maybe you're alluding to these organoids out of the Hans Snook group in Columbia and other groups. I know at Cincinnati they did esophageal organoids. We're talking about organoids here. And it's really impressive to look at them. I know you, you've uh, done some work with organoids as well. To look at these things, because, you know, the lung alveoli, I, I don't want to call them simple, but I think that they're that you can you can see them, you can imagine them. They're relatively simple, um, and a and a kind of monotypic uh, organ. Although I, you you'll tell me that it's not, and you're right. I'm wrong. Let me just put that out there. But um, looking at these organoids that that are made by these groups, they really look like we're approaching something that could maybe function. What's the gap between those and and something that could be in a patient? Sure. Well, at this point, the organoids that, that we're growing in the lab, uh, in my lab, we've primarily been working with mouse cells, but we're getting our, our hands, uh, we're developing the techniques in our hands that other of groups have developed, such as Barry Strip, to actually culture primary human lung cells. But when we think about these organoid structures, at this point, most of us are doing them with an epithelial cell plus one type of stromal cell. And the, a limitation there is that that doesn't constitute the whole milieu of a little lung structure, of a little alveolus. Hmm. Uh, I just heard Mark Krasnow give a talk, and he was talking about how he's describing 
the details of every cell type that's in one alveolus. And we really don't know that precisely at all, what it even looks like in the human lung precisely. Uh, for the organoids, what we're doing in my lab is trying to deliver organoids back into the lungs of a mouse and see, do they even have the ability to help this mouse lung function in some way? Uh, and our organoid cultures have the great advantage that we enjoy of being able to tell us how different cell types are interacting. But one limitation of the organoids right now is that we can't use them to know that there's a lung-like function happening. For example, uh, as far as I'm aware, no one has shown that these structures can actually have uh, a functioning blood vessel in them, that mm -hmm. you could actually have gas exchange going mm -hmm. on in them. And, you know, important physiological activities that ultimately we would want to be able to show that they could integrate and, and have those kinds of functions. So that's, you know, a step for the future. Right. All right. Shifting gears. I mean, after all, you were the, the first to identify cancer stem cells in two of the most frequent uh, types of lung cancer. Um, Tell us about maybe the, the state of the, and that's led to therapeutic approaches. Uh, what, where are we with lung cancer and different types of lung cancer? You know, we, we hear a lot about maybe because there's so many types, but of hematological malignancy and progress and how we've gone from 90%, you know, fatality and childhood leukemia to 90% cure, et cetera. Just more emblematic of the great progress we've made in cancer in the last 40 years, I'd say. Where does lung cancer fit in there? Right. So lung cancer, when someone gets this diagnosis, of course, it's, it's devastating. And the survival for lung cancer still hasn't really improved uh, over the last 50 years. But today, if someone is diagnosed, they have the great advantage of being able to have their tumor genotype known for the prominent oncogenic changes. So for example, now if someone finds out they have lung cancer with an EGFR mutation, there are targeted therapies that can help patients live longer. And that's really exciting. And that's completely separate from the stem cell aspect. So lung cancer in particular, compared to some other types of cancer, the genetics of the disease is critical for knowing what kind of drugs can help the patients. And still, there are, there are many uh, types of lung cancer for which we do know the genetics, but there's still no targeted therapy. So our hope is that by studying these cancer stem-like cells within the tumors, especially of tumors of those genotypes like those that are driven by oncogenic KRAS, that we can help discover other, uh, other drug targets that could help those patients. And that's where, you know, the angle we're really coming into it. Because uh, we think by studying those rare cells, uh, at least sometimes these cancer stem cells are rare within a tumor. And within our mouse models, that seems to be the case. Uh, we might be able to uncover really important molecular dependencies 
that could also exist in the human tumors. Yeah, and that's, I mean, moving into the specific study that you had recently in Nature Communications, it's, it's focusing on a kind of epigenetic uh, mechanism that you're targeting there. And you, you just mentioned the oncogenic KRAS. And I think people are familiar with, generally familiar with the idea of tumor suppressors and oncogenes as, you know, in the multi-hit hypothesis. It, it, it's, I think, maybe more intuitive, uh, Maybe not, uh, but could you just elaborate on this idea of the epigenetic uh, mechanism and how that that uh, relates to the oncogenic or tumor suppressor function? Sure. So <clears throat> epigenetics uh, can can uh, of course people think of many things when they hear that word, and the part that I'm talking about are those uh, typically enzymes that. Are, uh, can write or erase a mark. These are often chromatin marks that control gene expression. And when we think about that for lung cancer or, or any cancer type, we can think about uh, a mutant oncogene where there's an alteration in the DNA of that gene that alters uh, the way that protein functions. On the other side of that, the epigenetic aspect is that there can be differences in the way proteins, these enzymes, are functioning because there are changes in their chromatin marks that have nothing to do with DNA mutations. And the important aspect of that is that can be another way that a tumor cell can, can keep growing, uh, take advantage of its environment, but that might also be another way to target, um, target cancers. And so epigenetic factors that are altered in cancer are often thought of as being overexpressed or overactive and that drugs that inhibit those epigenetic enzymes uh, could be a good use for therapy against a cancer. Hmm. And so I guess the, the, the kind of, I don't know what I would call it dogma, but maybe the accepted approach going in with this story of yours with that if you could inhibit the histone methyltransferase so in, in other words if you could so with this specific h3k9 histone if you could make it so it wasn't methylated then that would help the cancer and what you found was actually the opposite can you give us a little bit of more detail on that absolutely so the way this work all started was actually when my postdoc, Sam Robotham, uh, who had really great expertise in epigenetics coming into my lab, uh, he wanted to ask, how does altering epigenetic factors uh, affect lung cancer cells? And he actually did this very small screen with about 100 compounds that are known to be used in culturing of stem cells of a variety of tissues and to ask what effect those compounds had on lung cancer cells. We were actually originally hoping to find inhibitors or compounds that would decrease the markers of the cells that we think are lung cancer stem cells. But the biggest hit in Sam's screen was this drug, which is called uh, UNC0638, and it inhibits this protein called G9A, uh, which is one of those methyltransferases that we talked about. 
And what Sam saw was that when he took lung cancer cells and treated them with that inhibitor, the levels of SCA1, which is the cell surface marker of what we think are the cancer stem cells, actually increased. And this is not really the effect we hope to see, but it was the best hit in his screen. Um, interestingly, another hit was a BRD4 inhibitor, uh, which has since become very famous and studied in many different types of cancer. But at that time, Sam and I decided not to pursue that hit because too many people were working on it. Hmm. And there were very few papers about G9A. But what was in the literature about that was that there were papers where people had taken a variety of types of cancer cell lines and inhibited G9A or knocked it down. And they showed that that made cancer cells stop growing. Whereas what Sam found was that inhibiting G9A actually made the cells appear more like a cancer stem cell. And because it was such a different result, we said, wow, this is really interesting. We need to figure out what's going on here. And so the unifying mechanism there is that this, this is a repressive input, right? So that this, in your cancer stem cells, this was repressing pro-cancer, whereas maybe in those other cancer cell lines, it was repressing uh, things that were anti-cancer. Um, so is this, how does this relate to therapy? I mean, is a, what's the next step here? Sure. Well... You know, one of the reasons we decided to study this so much more was the papers leading up to this that were in the literature actually suggested that even for lung cancer, that a G9A inhibitor would be a good idea for cancer therapy. And there are companies developing G9A inhibitors for therapy for patients with lung cancer or other cancers. And whereas the effect that we saw, even in vivo, was that it, this G9A inhibition caused the tumors to become much more aggressive. And we decided that could be really dangerous and that it was important to share that finding. Like you're saying, though, in other types of cancer, it could be very beneficial. And I think we've seen this uh, many times over in the literature, especially with these epigenetic enzymes. There's a lot of excitement that targeting epigenetic enzymes can be sort of a catch-all for cancer therapy. But it really, every type of cancer, every genotype of cancer, every specific type of lung cancer really needs to be considered as a separate disease. And I think our work, you know, shows more evidence for that, for this particular inhibitor. At the time that our paper came out, even the month before, a paper had come out showing that G9A is a good target in breast cancer. And so it certainly could be very useful for certain kinds of cancer, but we need to understand the biology of every disease that we're looking at. And so the implication of what we saw is that you wouldn't want to give a lung cancer patient uh, a G9A inhibitor that that could make the tumors more aggressive. Do you think that puts a, the kibosh on these trials that were in play for lung cancer, or did they, that's going to come out in the phase one? Right. Well, as far as we know, there currently are no trials 
with this kind of thing on underway right now. Uh, but as we had started to work on this project and started talking about it at conferences, there were definitely people that would come up to us and say, you know, I work at this company. We actually were trying to use these inhibitors and your work is explaining our findings that it wasn't helping. <laughs> so, but these wow. are things that you never get to read about, right? right? Because right. it's not published and they're never going to pursue that drug because they didn't see a good effect. Or as you said, there could have even been an issue in the phase one, but it was, you know, it was good for us to know that, but it's, it's, it's not very tangible because we can't refer to a paper or a clinical study saying it didn't work. Because no uh, one's talking about them, right? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, the other thing was that we published almost back-to-back, -back, but in a different journal, was a, a paper uh, showing similar to what we did with skin cancer uh, from Salvador uh, Benita's group showing that G9A inhibition in skin cancers is also dangerous. Mm. And we worked very closely with them to coordinate our publications. Um, so we're excited that others could see the same thing that we saw. Um, and that, of course, it all depends on what type of cancer you're looking at. Another paper from John Minna's uh, group came out um, before ours, and they had looked at a huge panel of lung cancer cell lines. And they found that if you combined a demethylase inhibitor with another drug, that that might be beneficial. And our work actually points to the fact that inhibiting the demethylase, which works the opposite as this G9A inhibitor, could actually be advantageous for lung cancer. Mm. So we do have a positive aspect to our study that rather than the expected inhibitor, if you use the one that functions the opposite way, that actually may be beneficial. Gotcha. So we're hoping that progress is made towards clinical trials in that way. Very cool. Um, so now I just want to go, go behind the curtain here, uh, step away from science for a second. So my brother, he went to Harvard Law School, and he told me about this thing called, he described it as the H-bomb, which was that essentially, you know, as soon as Har Harvard is mentioned, that people kind of lose resolution on the detail, and it's just the whatever, it's Harvard. So in, in science, I think that that maybe in, in law, it's like once you get in, that's it. You're set up and you get all the good jobs. And, and there's these firms that if you're not from the big three or whatever, they won't even consider you. You know how it is. And in science, I would say there is this uh, veneer at Harvard that works both ways. It's, you know, of course, justifiably, it's major academic center, brightest minds and everything. But I think the other side of that is that there's this notion, at least that I, I think that there's like tremendous competition and that to be a, a, a professor there, you're always looking over your shoulder, et cetera. Could you tell us a little bit about what's the reality of, of, of Harvard and, you know, and your experience there? I know, you know, Children's Hospital of Boston, same thing, but... The, the, the name Harvard and how that has maybe affected your scientific experience for better and or worse. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm really, I feel so fortunate to, to be where I am. Not only Harvard Children's Hospital, but 
to really just be running a lab because I think this is the best job that anyone could have. And I really hope that the postdocs and students and anyone who's listening to this really understands I'm being very sincere that I think we have a very challenging job, but I think we're very lucky when we get to have a lab and, you know, direct our research where we want to, where we want it to go. And being at a place like Children's and Harvard, uh, we're so fortunate that we have a lot of resources and we have people nearby that can help us do experiments. Uh, it may not always be the person you want to work with, uh, but usually there's more than one person, so you can pick the best person to work with. Um, one of my uh, really uh, great collaborators has been Kwok Kin Wong, who was at Dana-Farber, and he recently moved to NYU, uh, and we miss having him nearby, but we still work together. And just having people nearby that have expertise and, for example, a chance to work with people who are uh, oncologists who see patients with lung cancer, that can really help our research. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a postdoc at MIT, I did not like going over to the Harvard Medical School area. It always felt congested, noisy. There were security guards at every building. Everyone, when I was a postdoc, we thought, wow, at Harvard, it's terrible over there. No one collaborates. It's very aggressive. Uh, and I enjoyed the atmosphere at MIT, which had, it had a more comfortable academic feeling, and I thought that they were very different. But I think it really depends where you land and what your niche is. And I feel really fortunate where I am in the stem cell program at Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, we have a really great program with mentoring. Len Zahn is my chair there. Within genetics, I have Cliff Tabin. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have programs in place that mentored me during the time I was establishing my lab. And I think in many places that doesn't exist. And I think it's really important. Um, I also really enjoy the friendships I have with other people that have labs nearby. And I think that's, you know, been really helpful for keeping things going and, and helping me be successful as well. So, you know, could we do this anywhere? Probably. Um, and I, I think, to me, it's a surprise. I never would have pictured, oh, I would have a lab at Harvard. But that's where things let, lent uh, me to be able to be, and uh, I, I'm very happy there. All right, well, the, I've heard it called the, the Harvard Mafia, but I have to say that everyone I've met there personally and, and you know, virtually, they've been wonderful people. So uh, you got a lot going for you there. One last question, actually two questions. Um, what was your greatest, like, you know, that science gasm, like, thing? You saw it before anyone ever saw it, the truth. And conversely, what was the greatest, I don't want to call it disappointment, but, like, surprise like wow that's exactly not what i was expecting could you give us one or both of those if you can remember now are you talking about in my own work? yes in your own work i mean as a postdoc or your your postdoc comes to you and says you're not going to believe this carla right <laughs> oh wow okay well you know i think 
I think those things are happening every day. <laughs> I, it's always hard for me to pick a favorite or a biggest thing. No, it's a tough one. I'm sorry. What I, what I really think is it's so important how every time someone walks into my office to show me data, they might have a different result than someone else. Or someone else from another group might email me and say, I don't get the same result you do. I say, okay, let's look at why is that. And let's work together. What I think has been really exciting for me is at the beginning of this talk, we talked about the Basques and how a lot of people would tell me, you can't call that a stem cell. And other people would say, how are you doing with those stem cells? And we still don't know that the exact same cell type exists in the human lung, but we certainly know that there are cells that do amazing things to respond to injury in the human lung. And someday, hopefully, we can pinpoint those with markers. Uh, if not, we can, what's really been amazing is that our field has been able to find molecules that can control those cells. So I think it'll be really amazing someday to be able to see what impact that specifically can have on a patient. And in the meantime, we're having a lot of fun figuring out what we can learn about these things in the lab. Well, that it is a lot of fun, right? I mean, running a lab, as you said, it is a, a joy. We're all very lucky to do it. And it's, uh, I think it's nice to talk to uh, someone like you working at the highest level to see that ultimately it's reduced down to the same thing. You could do it anywhere. It's, it's, it's uh, a gift. Um, thanks very much for joining us, Dr. Kim. Uh, this has been a great chat. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All right. That was a great chat with Carla Kim. She taught us a lot of what we know about the lung with her original work on them Basques. But she'll tell you, and she was the first right off the bat. She told you, we need to, you know, be more specific in our classification. That's why you got to talk to the people themselves. You know, a lot that comes through when you talk to the people themselves. All right, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests or to volunteer to be a guest all right or to tell me something nice about myself thank you people so much for tuning in to episode 133 regenerative and malignant stem cells in the lung with dr carla kim that's a wrap see you in a couple weeks